Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have Malcolm Stern on today. He has worked as a group and individual psychotherapist for nearly 30 years. He's the co-founder and director of Alternatives at St. James Church in London and teaches and runs groups internationally. And when Malcolm's daughter, Melissa, took her own life in 2014, he experienced what most parents would consider their worst nightmare, and his grief made him challenge every aspect of his work and life, and it, it thrust his growth and development forwards in ways he can never possibly imagine, forcing him to confront his worst fears and work through his biggest blocks. Malcolm, welcome to We Earth Radio. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you. I noticed just to start with and trying to read your bio, how it just affected me to hear about Melissa's taking her own life. And let's just start back there and then kind of look backward to the evolution and share a little bit about, you know, it's, it is the worst nightmare of a parent to lose a child and condolences to you to also, but I'm also interested in how you use that to awaken and, and deepen your work in the world. Well, it, it is the, the thing I'm writing. I'm writing another book at the moment on, on um, triumphing, triumphing over adversity, and and I think that it's adversity is what wakes us up as a species in a macrocosm of, of of life, but also individually. That what we go through molds us and shapes us. If we have a life where not much happens to us, we're un- unlikely to really reach for the stars. We'll we'll settle into our comfort zone, mm-hmm. and this propelled me into reaching for the stars. So. 2014, uh, it's so funny because when I talk about Melissa, I never know whether I'm going to crack up or not. And if I do, it's absolutely fine with me. So if I have tears in my eyes, fine. If my voice shakes, fine, but it may not. Um, So 2014, I was running the end of my one-year group, which is something I've been running since 1990, which is basically nine weekends plus a a four-and-a-half-day residential. And I was on day two of the residential with a group who'd been together for a year. And uh, I was, interestingly, taking some publicity photos taken in a graveyard when the, my phone rang. And it was, and so I left the graveyard and it was Melissa's mother. And she said, uh, Melissa's not with us anymore. And I said, where is she? And she said, no, she's not on this planet anymore. And um, and that moment, it was like, what the hell? I'm just going back to run a group with my ongoing group. How the hell am I going to do this? And uh, so I went to the group, luckily, um, David uh, Confino, who's one of the members of the group, is also a psychotherapist. And I said to him, David, this has just happened. Can you take over the group? He set up a grief circle. So the whole group stood in a circle and uh, shared what he shared what had happened for me. And I was in shock. And, uh, and um, he said, those of you who've lost a parent step forward and two-thirds of the group stepped forward. 
Those of you who've lost a sibling, step forward, two or three step forward. Those who've lost a close friend, step forward, half the group, step forward. Those of you who lost a child, and it was just me. And in that moment, it landed for the first time. And it lands and it, and it takes off and has done over the years. It's now seven years almost since, it, uh, since this happened. Um, and it, it has it, grief has its way with me. And at first I tried to go into therapy to work it out. Waste of time. I was too cerebral. I couldn't get into the feelings. And then something magical happened for me that actually was, was the breakthrough in my consciousness that actually really made the biggest shift. So Melissa's mother was not my ex-wife. So I have two other children with my ex-wife and she and I live very close to each other now and we're, we're very close. But Melissa's mother and I were not close. And, um, and I felt really angry with her mother. Um, she had refused to allow me to speak at the funeral. She'd asked my ex-wife not attend not attend the funeral. And I said, if she isn't coming, I'm not either. And in which case you tell people why Melissa's father's not at the funeral. So she bent on that. Um, but she was, she was someone who I'd had a very difficult relationship with. And there was a part of me that hated her. And I say so with, with, with sort of, um, I, I don't like to feel like that. And I don't like to acknowledge that either. But there was a playback theatre performance for Melissa's life given by the, the playback theatre company, which is a sort of a type of, you probably know it, Michael. It's a sort of a uh, where you play out stories that people share from the audience. And this whole evening was dedicated to Melissa, and it was in London. And unexpectedly, Melissa's this is five months after she died, her mother showed up. And uh, her mother started shouting at me, and I started getting into stuff. And both our sons stood by our sides and held a space where they were going to make sure that things didn't get out of hand. And um, in that moment, when I saw these boys, with tears in their eyes and just sweetness in their faces, holding the space, I, I melted into Sue, Melissa's mother's arms, and sobbed. And in that moment, in letting go of my hatred, in letting go of all my bad feeling, the grief landed, it really landed. And from there on, it's been a journey. And although I have nothing to do with her mother anymore, I wish her well. I wish I had no wish for ill will for her. I see her as a grieving parent. And we had a very difficult relationship. And that feels like it's past now. But that overcoming of negative feeling towards another was a breakthrough for me. And actually, I saw that if I'm really going to acknowledge this, I have to find the love in my heart in everything I do. Wow. <sighs> I have to take a deep breath here just to hold that. One As you know, the Michael, that's the first time I've told that story with such feeling. So there must be something in you that's also holding that space for me too. I've had a lot of loss in my life also. You know, the, one of the images that stands out for me is the group and you being the only one in that loss and how fortunate to be able to step into a group of compassionate witnesses to hold your grief and to be with that. And I think that's something that we don't know how to grieve as a species very well, at least in the West. We, that's exactly in the West, we don't know how right. to grieve. Yeah, I, I make that very clear clarification. It's like, you know, well, your husband died. It's been six months. Get over it. Go go out and, uh, on a date or something, you know. And grief is so unique to 
our psyche, our ancestral background, our family. Talk a little bit about your work with not only your grief, but as a psychotherapist, your work with grief in general. Well, my main work is in groups, and, and uh, I've been running psychotherapy groups for more than 30 years. And, uh, and actually, in those groups, people bring scenarios from their lives. They're not specific. They're not groups for grieving or groups for anger management or anything like that. They're just psychotherapy groups. But invariably, if people have come to a group, it's because there's a space of deep grief. And one of the practices we do as a group is we, 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 bear, we, we, we create a space where we bear witness to each other. And in that bearing witness comes beauty and magic. Mm. I remember a man coming into my office once when I was working in a medical practice in, uh, in Lyme Regis in Devon, in Dorset, and uh, telling me that he, was, he, he just lost his wife and telling me he was depressed. And, and I looked him straight in the eyes and I said, John, you're not depressed, you're grieving. And in that moment, his face lit up because it was legitimate to grieve. And he hadn't legitimized his own grief. And I think for me, observing grief, bearing witness to grief, um, and going through my own grief process. And before that, I'd, had a, I'd seen myself as having a bit of a charmed life. Mm-hmm. You know, there hadn't been any deep grieving. My sister had had terrible nervous breakdowns, but I'd sort of almost bypassed those. Uh, my parents had both lived um, into their 90s. Um, and I hadn't had significant losses in my life until... Melissa, who was a really significant loss. So in bearing witness to others' grief, I, I learned about it. But also it's one of the chapters of my book, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, is, is actually how to bear witness because there's a practice we can do. And if we try and do this without, uh, by keeping our hearts closed, without bringing ourselves fully present, we can listen, but we don't really bear witness. And for me, there's something so profound, and you talked about before that, that actually we don't know how to grieve in the West well, actually, in, 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 in some of the African countries, um, they keen together, they grieve, they mourn together, they share their griefs. And that's how it feels sane. We feel that we've become so technologically advanced that actually at an emotional level, we're, we're stunted. And I was stunted. And I've had to work really hard to find my own avenues of grieving. So I joined a, a suicide, people who've been bereaved by suicide, I joined a support group. And learned about sharing with other people's experiences. It was it was tough for me because um, the group wasn't run as well as I run groups. But it was it was an important space where I was dealing with what I was dealing with, and I had to get off my own stuff and just become a participant in a group and sh- group and share my own grief. But the real breakthrough for me came when I was working in a in one of Thomas Hubel, who I know you know of also, uh, one of Thomas Hubel's groups. And, um, and I uh, went to the place of grief in the center of the circle. And, and, and in that moment, I sobbed. There was no longer me there. There was just the pain, just the grief. And the immense relief that came from bearing my soul and sharing my grief and letting it be seen. And what's more, in, in that place of release, all the people around me in the group were deeply moved. Grief is not a terrible thing. It's something we run away from. It's something I've run away from my whole life. I don't want to face my own grief. I'm pretty good at handling other people's, but I'm not great with my own. And Melissa has educated me. And actually, interestingly, Michael, in the, in the writing of the book, so in 2017, I, I met up with a friend of mine, Ben Crabe, who is um, he's a, uh, an editor and, uh, and a, a publisher. And we agreed to try and put the book together. And he, he helped me put the architecture together. He helped me put the structure together and then got my words down. It was a brilliant job. He did a really great job. 
And in writing my book, there was a while where it just flowed through me. And it, I felt like Melissa was at my side, helping me bring this book through. And at one stage, I said to Ben, if this book never gets read, if it never gets published, it doesn't matter. The work I've done in, in unwrapping my soul in this writing process is worth, it doesn't matter about anything else. I've gone to the places I've needed to go to. I've looked at myself. I've looked at my daughter. I've looked at the, the other things in my life and, and managed to find some way of exorcising them in myself. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. You know, I've, I find that group work is so... It's exponential in the ability for people to heal over the individual work. And I, I love doing group work. In fact, I don't really even want to do individual work that much anymore. Right. That, I understand that, yes. <laughs> there's just something, you know, when, when the, pop, the corn starts popping that you can just travel lifetimes in terms of dealing with grief and suffering and pain and, and bringing ourselves back into our essential goodness. Well, I'm thinking it would be nice to go back before Melissa and talk about your evolution as you got into being a psychotherapist and what informed you, what called you early on. You had a lot of great mentors. Maybe talk about that a little bit and then let's get into more about the the book. And the book, by the way, is Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And I loved it, read it, covered it, cover to cover and highly recommend this book. And uh, tell us a little bit about your evolution. Yeah, just to say, while you mentioned the book, the book is not a grief memoir. The book is a learning and an understanding having been educated through grief. Right. So that feels very important to me that it is yeah. a sad story. It is a sad story, but yeah. hopefully it's inspiring. But Thanks for the uh, my life before that goes a long, long way back. So in my 20s, um, I left school and I began to study um, accountancy which I was quite good at. Um, and, and actually, after about two years, uh, I, I decided to do something radical, which was to leave the profession of accountancy and take up the semi-profession of the state agency of real estate. And, um, and there I could earn decent money. I drove a Jaguar and it was like, hey, this is, this, is, this is cool. And then one day I was with some friends. And by the way, this is not a pro-drug announcement, just before I say this. I was with some friends and um, they were going to do this substance called acid which I'd never heard of before. And this tiny bit of blotting paper, we went around to a friend's flat and he's put some music on the stereo, Pink Floyd and other stuff. I, I knew it was going to be Pink Floyd. It had to be. Psychedelic music. And, it's like, <laughs> and suddenly I'm drifting off and I'm saying to my friends, hey, this world is not what we thought it was. And they're going, you're stone man, you'll come down soon. And um, they think to this day, I never came down from that trip. But actually what happened is that my consciousness expanded. And I suddenly saw that I was not what I believed I was and the world wasn't what I believed it was. And therein became a whole journey into consciousness. And uh, I started to work in different ways to try and find meaningful ways of giving my work and attention to, um, to life. I sailed on the Rainbow Warrior with Greenpeace. I worked at a terminal cancer hospice. Um, I helped run a whole food store. Um, all sorts of things that I felt had meaning. And then I went into therapy because I, I saw that I had quite a lot of terrible relationships, not, not terrible, but not very satisfactory relationships. And obviously the, 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 the factor that was there with all of them was me. So I went into therapy for about three years with Ian Gordon Brown, who was the, uh, the founder of transpersonal psychology. 
and who was a superb therapist. And, and I had this really deep process. And then I decided one day to go into group therapy. So I went and signed up for a humanistic psychology two-year diploma course. And I walked into that course, first group I'd ever been to. And I, I looked at the woman who's running the group and listening to what's going on, I thought, she's not very good. And I thought, God, I'm so arrogant. You know, it's like, I think, I, I thought I could do this better than her. And I thought, oh, God, shut up. You know, but actually this was quite brilliant because I realized that what happened now in retrospect, I had found my calling. Mm -hmm. And my calling was in that space to actually hold a group energy and to stay authentic and to practice all of that. And that became a lifelong thing for me. And it's like, um, I feel like I've been, I learned so much from groups. I learned so much from the people who are in my groups. And I like to run my groups as ongoing groups rather than one-offs mainly, because in the ongoing group, you see the change. And also the group have to congeal around each other as well, learn how to give compassionate feedback, but honest, authentic feedback, learn how to hold each other, learn how to be with each other and not avoid each other's grief, not avoid each other's pain, nor avoid each other's happiness. And, and all of those things we tend to flatten out as human beings. So there became a whole process there. So I started doing a running a one-year group. Um, I started running regular groups, ongoing groups. I ran men's groups, uh, which I still run to this day. And uh, I, I found that in groups, as you say, magic happens. You know, all the, it feels like time and space disappear. We enter into a, a timeless zone where, where actually the, the forces can come through us are much bigger than what we are. And at Esalen, where I've taught before in, in Big Sur, um, they have four golden rules for running a group. One is show up. Two is get out of the way. Three is trust. No, sorry. So the first is show up. The second is be pre stay present. The third is get out of the way. And the fourth is trust the process. Mm -hmm. So in those, that for me is quite a good Bible for, for group dynamics. Mm -hmm. you, you, give, you bring yourself there and then you allow what happens to come through and you get your ego out of the way. And sometimes I'll, I'll watch something, oh, that wasn't that fantastic. It's not me. I've, if I can get out of the way, fantastic things can happen because we're, as, as it would have said in the Bible, which I'm not, I'm not Christian, but I, uh, when two or more are gathered in my name, and I actually feel that when two or more are gathered in a group, then magic can happen. Mm. Mm. You bring back memories. Esalen used to be my second home. I'm surprised we didn't meet. Oh, wow. There. Oh, shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I know whose group you were in, too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit uh, because there's so many parents that are losing children to suicide these days. It's an epidemic. And I'd like to talk about that, particularly for the parents to, to see, first of all, were there signals, were there signs, were there things you would have done differently? And also how to take care of yourself afterwards when something happens like that? what can we do to help to prevent it by our connection and our relationship before things get out of hand? Talk a little bit about that, Malcolm, because it's, you have so much wisdom from your own experience. Well, I have learned experience. Unfortunately, I'm a member of a club which uh, has, has educated me and has given me the experience. And interestingly, because I'm doing a lot more one-to-one -one therapy in lockdown because I can't really run the same sort of groups online as I ran, um, in, in, uh, in person, uh, I've seen a lot of happening. And if I look back at my own scenario, 
in retrospect, it was so blindingly obvious that Melissa was heading for a fall. But you can't, when you're in it, it's much harder to see it. You, get, you can look back and go, my God, that was so bizarre. But at the time, it was just like she's being so difficult rather than actually she's, she's lost losing it. And actually what's needed is more understanding. Now, since Melissa died, interesting, I had a phone, the way the synchronicity works, I had a phone call about two years after Melissa died asking me if I would run workshops at some, an event called Compassionate Mental Health, which, which deals a lot with suicide and deals a lot with, with all sorts of other things. And I thought I was going along to educate people. I was going to hold space, tell the group, tell Melissa's story, hold um, psychodrama type of workshops. But actually what happened is there were so many people there who'd been survivors of suicide, who'd been bereaved by suicide, who'd actually had to really go through their suffering. And each of them was an educator for me and for each other. And so for me, what I'm starting to learn about are what are the signals? And you, you can't always spot the signals. And sometimes the child, I'm, I'm working with one woman, the child can be so secretive that actually you don't know until after they've gone what they were holding and what they were, they were gathering. And sometimes it's more obvious. With Melissa's case, it was quite obvious, but she'd had a mental breakdown 10 years previously and got through it. And, and I just assumed that she was having a really rough time and she'd get through it. And the others, what often happens, and it's in the suicide support group I went to, which was interesting for me as a, as a bereaved parent, was that this pattern seems to often be a period of intense mania. So that the, 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 the person is wild and, and sort of, you know, living right outside the tram lines in all sorts of ways. And that intense mania then goes and dips into a place of deep depression, the sort of depression that you or I probably have no idea what it is, a place of utter hopelessness and darkness. And in Melissa's case, she used to dress in extraordinarily bright colours, wear bright lipsticks. She was a, a very extraordinary sort of like, you know, glittering character, brought lots of light. People adored her. She was loved everywhere she went. And um, uh, she worked for Kids Company, which is working with some of the most damaged children in the UK. She was a caseworker for Kids Company, handling some terrible scenarios. So she lost her brightness and, and actually she went into a very, very dark space. Now, interestingly, um, I'm going to come back to where we were, Michael, so remind me where we were, because actually something quite extraordinary happened. I was longing to have a dream about Melissa. And after about six months, I, I, in my dream, I discovered where Melissa was and I rang, rang up this place and said, can I speak to Melissa, please? And the woman answered the phone. She said, just a moment, I'll get her. And this... Melissa came to the phone in a very flat voice said hello mum I said it's not mum it's dad and she hung the phone up and for the next year and a half so for two years afterwards I never dreamed about her again even though I was longing to have a dream about her anyway cut forward another 18 months so two years after her death and I had I was in Thailand and I had this dream and in this dream um, Melissa was at a party and she was glittering and she was bright again and she was wearing beautiful lipsticks and wearing beautiful clothing. And I saw her at the party and I was going to go over to her, but I didn't need to go over to her. She looked at me and she sent me this radiant smile and this place of extraordinary love. Now that of its own was beautiful, but I rang my daughter the next day, my daughter Alexandra, my other daughter, who was a, her half-sister. She'd had exactly the same dream, wow. the same night. And for me, that was a moment of such utter healing that it had taken two years in earthly time to process what had happened, but actually something had happened. 
and the, it felt like the process was complete. And and I feel like anything I've gone through since, I feel like Melissa's been on my side. I've never felt like uh, that clash that we'd had before. You know, Malcolm, one thing you don't know about, well, two things you don't know about. First of all, my mother committed suicide, but secondly, sorry, the, the second thing is that I studied with Gabrielle Roth for 40 years. And one of the things that I see that's a challenge is people are so disembodied, particularly again in the West I'm speaking of, and that when these signs and signals are there, if we're not in our body and we can't feel the energy of another person in our body, then there's no way that we can tell. So how do you bring the body into the work that you do with people? Well, most of the work I do, interestingly, and that's why I'm saying it's so difficult for me to run groups online, is, is around the body. So I'm, and I, I do it intuitively. I'm feeling what's happening in the body. When someone's working and I'll always ask permission, I'll, I'll put my hand on them and I'll get to feel what's going on in their body. Sometimes I'll, I'll speak for someone. If they can't get out the words they need to say, I'll say, hold on a moment, I'm gonna speak for you. And I put my hand on them and I speak as though I was them saying it and checking, of course, that it's accurate. But often things are happening in the body, clues are happening in the body, eye contact or lack of eye contact, quivering, shaking, um, shortening the breath. So all of these things are happening in the body. And if we can get embodied in who we are, we start to, um, to be able to actually viscerally feel things and understand things through the wisdom of the body. And of course, you tell me about Gabrielle, is, is, uh, you know, we had her at, uh, at Alternatives as well. And, and I'm, little old ladies dancing on the church pews. It was, uh, she was fantastic there. And it was so embodied and um, <laughs> uh, it was amazing, you know. And so um, I do think that actually there are signs in the body, but often we're stiff and we're stuck. And, and I think we have to start, it's a bit, a bit like detectives. If we see things going wrong, we've got to search for the, for the clues. Yeah. And, and, and what I'm looking at particularly is the antidote to some of these things. So you were, you were asking before about how do parents deal with it afterwards? Well, there are often signs before and they'll be different. For some, for some parents, it'll be the child's closed up quite a lot or the child has it's gone manic or whatever it is. There'll be different, different things that go on. But when it's happened, we need to draw on the resources that we have and for me, the most important chapter in my book is the chapter on creating a Sangha, which is the Buddhist word for a spiritual community. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I have Sanghas and I've had Sanghas for, for, you know, for the last 30 years. So every Monday morning for an hour, a friend and I meet for an hour on Zoom um, and we take half an hour each, say 20 minutes each, sharing what's going on for us and then getting reflection from the other. And then, um, uh, then the other person shares. And we have that as a regular practice. And it's a place not to go, oh, you poor thing, that happened to you. It's a place to really listen to each other and reflect for each other and to give loving challenge. Mm. After this uh, interview today, I'm, I'm in part of a triad, which meets on a Friday afternoon in my time, it's afternoon. Um, and, and there's three of us that meet. And we take, again, we take half an hour each with the three of us, um, sharing things and getting reflection and trying to get underneath what's, what's really going on. Because it's very easy for us to share our stories. That's not what it's about. It's actually about sharing our essences and seeing what it is the stories are educating us to understand. And that's what interests me in, in the work we can do after we've been bereaved or when we go through difficult times, we need to find practices that will support us. Of course, meditation is a, 
is one such practice, but it's also the practice of being with others of like mind is really important. Mm. You know, one of the things I got from Thomas Hubel and studying with him is um, I had spoken about that suffering for years, that suffering, all suffering is a product of the myth of separation, the lie of separation. And, but I had that more cognitively, but when I started working with Thomas and uh, seeing yourself, seeing the other, seeing you, I had this realization that there's no, not only is there no separation, but the other person shows up me in me as a wave. We think, oh, in the kind of uh, skin encapsulated ego, I'm over here and you're over there in London. But in effect, I'm showing up in your nervous system and you're showing up in mine. And to cultivate that, I think is why you can put your hand on a person's shoulder and speak what they're feeling because you, it is in you and it is showing up. And I enter the field of that person. Exactly. And and we are, you and I are entering into the field of each other now as well, which is lovely. And when there's a harmonious connection, then we get so enhanced by that as well. So that's why I love doing interviews with people who know what they're doing. In the early days when the book came out, I did some interviews with people who, you know, didn't even know what Buddhism was or or anything like that. It was like, you don't get much of an interview then because you're just trotting out the facts. For me, the the exchange is what creates the magic. Yeah, yeah. That uh, Buddhist term of interdependent co-arising has always been one of my favorite. uh, Yes. It says says volumes just in that, that term itself. Another thing that you do, though, too, is couples work. And I think a lot of relationships right now with COVID in um, people being locked up together and not being able to socialize very much or be with others is putting a strain on marriages and couples and relationships. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the things that you've learned and that you teach about cultivating healthy relationships yeah, I think in any relationship, you've got me, you, and us. Mm-hmm. And, and if you lose the, the, the me or you lose the you, then the relationship suffers. Mm-hmm. Um, and often people give themselves away in relationships or they, they become so fearful and don't realise they're fearful that they push the other away as well. They try to control the relationship. So for me, I, I, what I've seen in, in the lockdown is that some people get really close together because actually they've seen what fantastic support they can provide for each other. But very often you are, you are at close quarters and you're claustrophobic around each other and you have to learn how to create and find space for yourselves and for each other. And that's not easy to do. Um, I think there's something about practising authenticity and honesty. So I think that for me that's at the core of every good relationship is the place of authenticity. And if mm-hmm. we can practise that place, even when things are going on, that we can we can explore them, even though we know they may hurt. And one of the um, practices I put in, in Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, which I find so incredibly useful for couples, was inspired by reading John Fowles' The Magus. And I don't know if you've read that book. No, I haven't. And it's a wonderful book. Um, and uh, it's, it's a story of a, of a young man who basically goes on a journey of self-discovery and, and is educated in, in life, relationships and everything and at the end of the story, he's travelled around, he's travelled to Greek islands and, and been educated and, and switched on and all sorts of things. And he finds this wise woman towards the end of the story and she said, my husband and I only ever had two rules 
And with those two rules, we were able to achieve a real harmony within our relationship. One is we would always speak the truth to each other. And two, we would never hurt the other more than was necessary. Mm. So there is a recognition that actually in relationships, we are going to cause each other pain. But if we try and avoid that, and my mother was a master at avoiding pain, which was, I was you know, educated at my mother's knee. If we try and avoid that, that, um, that place of pain, we end up diluting the relationship. So the relationship either becomes sterile and stagnant, or, or there's conflict that arises because you're not really meeting. What we're searching for in relationship is deep connection and deep companionship. And, and it's, it's quite difficult to sustain that. Because love is not something that happens. You know, any idiot can fall in love. But to love another human being, Rainer Maria Rilke, the, the German philosopher, said, if you, in your lifetime you can love one other human being, you've achieved an extraordinary amount. Yeah. I think that's the practice in relationship, is can we bring our love? Can we bring the, the place of service without rolling over, that we're just like a sort of like a scared mouse running around our partner? But actually, can we bring the place where we are willing to serve this other manifestation of the divine who lives with us or is part of us? Yeah. That's brilliant. Yesterday, you know, I, I told you I'm in retreat this weekend with Gabor Mate. And uh, yesterday he played an old Elvis Presley song, Any Way You Want Me. Have you ever seen, you remember that song? I'll be whatever you want. I'll be this. I'll be that. I'll be anything you want. And I, I mentioned that because of this early attachment issue that we all have to deal with. And the, the fact that, you know, the, the more we don't get the soothing, the nurturing, the touch, the love that we're crying for and needing as an infant and, and as a young child, the more we try to get that, some people are still 50, 60 reading or, you know, leading organizations and still trying to get it in the same way, that this need for connection in the early years, if we don't get it, we will be inauthentic. We will be any way you want me in trying to get my father's love or my mother's love. And, and that um, leaves us with a choice between being, as you say, authentic or real and being connected or um, um, uh, attached. And we'll almost always, without a, a very conscious awakening, we'll almost always choose attachment over authenticity. What are your thoughts about that <clears throat> path back? I think that's beautifully put, Michael, actually. So um, I think that, that that is the truth as I see it as well, that actually we are constantly looking to get, enter into our comfort zone. And you talk about people leading big organizations and still being full of attachment stuff. It's true. It doesn't, it doesn't mean because you, you've succeeded in the world that you can succeed within relationships or that you are genuinely authentic. You may have a particular skill, but you may be an utter moron at, at an emotional level as well. Might even so, run a country. Or even run, well, <laughs> yes. I won't say any more about that, but yes. That's also a possibility. In fact, it's a probability. Yeah, because I think people who crave power are also suffering from a lack of attachment. Exactly. For, you know, when I made a TV series for, um, I made a TV series for Channel Four uh, back in the early two thousands, um, and uh, I had I had three million viewers 
regularly watching this show. And it still wasn't enough for me. I still craved the attention. And I realized that actually that nothing was going to feed that unless I found it within. And I think that's the bottom line is that when we finally realize that actually we are desperately craving and that actually no other person can actually feed that craving, but that we can find ways of doing it ourselves and we can get support in doing it, then we start to, to become more sovereign beings, no longer craft craving for another to feed us so that we can feel alive. And if we're looking for our relationship to create a way of us feeling alive, it may do for a while, but ultimately the, the relationship will become stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautifully said. You know, one of the things that's always been important to me uh, when I was, I was actually an organizational development consultant for much of my career, gestalt based, but very much in that, in that practice. And the thing that's always been important for me is continuous development. Even, even in college, I was always having salons every week and, and things like that. And you have started, I don't know if it's still running, but the speakers program at St. James. And I'm just curious about not only what that was and, but how you use that to develop yourself in that and ongoing education and experience. Well, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting, Michael, that actually um, I, what's happened over the 35, 38 years that Alternatives has been running is that we've had every major speaker from all over the world has come through. Marianne Williamson, Neckar Tolle, Deepak Chopra, Ram Das, um, uh, Caroline Meister. They've all, they've all been there. Thomas Hubel. Um, and I have learned over the years to see the main characteristic, which I got educated in by Ramdas, he talked about transmission. And when a speaker transmits his truth or her truth, that speaker is no longer egotistically bringing through something to get himself the adulation of the audience, but actually something is coming through them. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to become very sort of adept at spotting when there's transmission and when there's ego. And I'm not calling ego wrong. But I'm just saying that actually, for me, the real learning, the real education comes in, in being around transmission. And I remember um, uh, uh, Gung Master doing some really weird stuff, and I can't remember anything that happened, except I knew that I'd felt transformed by that evening. Mm -hmm. I remember going to see the Dalai Lama speak, and again, not hardly understanding a word or remembering a word, but I was transformed by the transmission. Mm -hmm. And I've watched it over the years that that's those those people who can transmit are the educators for me. People like Jack Cornfield, who uh, very kindly gave me a beautiful endorsement for my book as well. Eckhart Tolle, who also gave me an endorsement. They, they, they were bringing through transmission, Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, and she was she had suffered deep loss. Her, her, the love of her life had died a few months before she came to speak for us. And, and she brought through that genuine transmission where she wasn't hiding or, or flashing anything off. So for me, that's, that's extremely powerful, that place of transmission. And Ramdas, for me, was one of the great teachers that I had. I was very fortunate to go on retreat with him a number of times and form quite a close connection with him. And, and so I, I think for me, there's, a, there's an education about getting out of the way, being authentic, speaking your truth, and, and also relating to your audience. It's guaranteed if someone comes with a set of notes to speak to people in, in, about what their subject they're not going to land because they're not relating in the present to who's there. 
you're just bringing through something you you put together a while beforehand and are then bringing through. So I, I think what I'm learning is that, that to trust the process, that actually there is a transmission, there is a wisdom that exists that we can tap into through meditation, through, through being speakers. If, you, if people like you and I are speaking or running workshops, there's a place we can tap into that is accessible for us. And as long as we don't marvel at our own genius at bringing it through. Yeah, transmission is a really interesting thing because I don't think you can do transition. You know? <laughs> I can't teach it, that's for sure. Transmission, yeah. Yeah. You've got to be transmission. You've got to have that causal consciousness. Um, and it's, it's kind of an integrity thing, really. There's a sense of wholeness that you are so connected uh, with your audience or with the person that they know something's happened. They may not know what it is, like being with the Dalai Lama or being with Thich Nhat Hanh was that for me. And Ramdas, we had, <laughs> I, I had the most wonderful time in Hawaii. I spent the day together and, um, you know, it was at, when he had the speech issue and I was doing an interview, which we probably did about five hours to get one hour. But it was, it was just, he was being such love mm -hmm. and being in service. He had cultivated that to such a degree that it was absolutely a direct transmission. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Yes. So let's talk a little more about the practices of uh, that you talk about in your book. I think it's really important, like, you know, doing doing the work. What What is the work and how do we do the work just to start with? Yes. Well, I think there are a number of ways. You see, we, there's not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. you, you know, doing the work isn't like, well, if you take this textbook and go from page one to page 400, you're going to be enlightened at the end of it you're still gonna to have to do the work. And for me, the work is all about practice. And what I did after Melissa died, and I needed to have a few years in between that I was absorbing the shock and I was learning and, and getting myself supported and finding my way through it. What I did was I started to realize there were a number of practices that had sustained me. And so I got those practices down. And I hate, normally hate books to say 10 ways to do this or seven ways to do that, or because I feel like they're just, you know, but actually, I'd found there were 10 ways to thrive, even when it feels impossible, which is the subtitle of my book. And I realized they were the practices that I'd been employing before Melissa died, but I was having to up my ante with them after Melissa died. And just very briefly, just to give you a quick whiz through the different practices. Yeah. The first is following your radar. So there's something about that we have what we call a sixth sense or a radar. Now, when I'm running groups, and doubtless when you're running groups, Michael, you will be tuning into something. You won't be intellectually going, oh, well, that's happened. So I have to go there because I went there last time. And then this will happen. And then you'll, you'll, you're going to be led in all sorts of labyrinthian patterns in order to be able to find your way through. But if you can get out of the way and follow that pattern, you're starting to follow your radar. In a smaller way, often you'll be thinking about someone and then they'll ring you and you go, oh, that's really funny, I was just thinking about you. But actually, you were tuning into the field of that person at the time. Or maybe you'll step off a curb and then you'll suddenly draw your foot back without knowing why and a car comes whizzing around the corner. And something in you had been educated to know that you had to get out of the way in that moment. So for me, there's developing our radar and not letting the intellect 
drive all of our thinking. So there's nothing wrong with the intellect, but it's the intellect is right when the intellect's right. But actually for me, there's something about bringing the right brain, that sort of sensitive brain, that part of us that knows way beyond understanding into play. And that's where a lot of our uh, magic happens. And the way we can develop that is by meditation. That's one of the ways in which we can do it. I was going to say, rather than educated, something was awakened because... What really, what really happens, I think, is there's a there's a capacity that's expanded our interiority, our our sense of uh, spaciousness is able to tap into the field. Whereas if we're cramped and and enclosed in this inner tightness, then there's no amount of education that is going to allow us to tap into that field. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that's absolutely right. So then we start, the more you do it, it's a bit like a muscle. The more, the more you do it, that muscle becomes stronger. Mm-hmm. So you can tap into that place inside you that intuitively knows what it is that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And you might, your intellect might challenge you for all it's worth. But actually, if you can intuitively tune in, then you can start to follow a bigger thing than your own psyche and ego. The next practice is bearing witness. Actually, there's a great opportunity to really learn how to listen to each other, to really learn how to be with each other. And often I'll, I'll say to the group, when someone's working in the group, I'll say, right, notice how you're sitting. Notice how you're breathing. Can you really stay present so you can bear witness? And in the bearing witness, a much bigger thing can take place that could have taken place in a sort of a, a noisy, crowded bar that's where actually none of that can happen. But if you create that, that environment where it can happen, where you're bearing witness, often the person will be able to find something inside themselves they hadn't even known was true themselves. And I certainly learned that with, with some of the many teachers that I've studied with, including Ramdas and Thomas Hubel and Pirvalayat Khan, the Sufi leader. Um, I learned about um, holding, that, holding that space and, and bearing witness to each other as well. I like interacting. So just, yeah, please, I, please, please, I just wanted to put, put something in there because for me there was a long time of meditation before I actually had an experience one day well this was years ago but one time where I was observing my mind and my emotions and I thought who's observing this and there was a split am I too or is consciousness actually observing my mind? And I think when we say witness, it's really easy to say that, but it's not just looking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I just wanted to underscore that. That's very good. I think that's really important. It's a really important point, actually. Bearing witness means being present, being fully present. So you're tuning in at every level of your being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's a practice. You're not necessarily going to go, right, today I'm bearing witness. It'll be that actually you're consciously aiming for that. The next one is Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, which is the title of the book, which is a a phrase I've used for decades. Um, And I heard it in a song. There was a song by a a band called Gentlemen Without Weapons, and the chorus was Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. I remember hearing it going, that's a really interesting concept. I started using it in groups and going, actually say what needs to be said but do it with compassion so that actually the other person can hear you as well. But don't soft soap people to try and make them feel better or to make you feel more liked. Speak your truth, 
but speaking with compassion. And this is a lifetime practice to, to be able to do that. But then you become trustworthy. If, if someone knows they're going to get their truth, your truth from you, you become trustworthy. And as I said, there are two golden rules that I learned from reading this book, The Magus. Always speak your truth, never hurt another more than is necessary. Which, which is if you follow my mother's rules, never hurt another, you'll just, you'll avoid things. You'll avoid really getting involved in proper relationship. Um, the next practice is let your relationships educate you. We are going to be educated in relationships. You can't hide in relationships. And I remember Ramdas saying to me once, he said, you know, he said, um, um, if people, if I start to believe what people say about me, that I'm magnificent, I'm enlightened, I'm an amazing human being, I'm all of this, all I need to do is get into a relationship for six months. And actually, that, that's, that's, that's the reality, is that if we are in a relationship, we can't hide, because we'll tune in at another level and see what it is that's going on. And we might choose to collude, but we won't choose to be deeply connected if we're colluding. Another Ramdas line that I like is, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a, a week with your family. With your exactly, family. exactly. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, <clears throat> then there's the, the ricochet effect. And actually, we are going to be ricocheted by things. So um, there's a, um, uh, the, we may think we're, we're doing fine. And at one level, we are always doing fine. Another level, there's always the whole world going on with, inside us as well. But um, but often someone else's story will trigger something in us that will bring out something from the seller that, that we may not have been aware of. And there's a magical moment where, go, you know, where actually you can grasp hold of something and see that there's an old wound or there's an old memory that needs to be processed and needs to be worked with. And, and I've seen that happen time and time again. That something will ricochet within a group and someone else will be so deeply impacted Mm -hmm. that it's almost um, unbelievable what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there's um, allowing your suffering to transform you. And most of us will run away from suffering. But actually, if we can stand in the face of suffering, and Stephen Levine is a wonderful teacher, used to say that if we can soften around our suffering instead of hardening around it, which most of us are doing, then, we st then the suffering starts to have meaning in our lives. You know, for me, there's no question that Melissa, bless her soul, has educated me enormously by, by allowing that suffering and welcoming that suffering. I welcome when feelings arise for me from Melissa's death or from Melissa's life. I welcome that time because actually I, I'm holding her in my heart and I'm allowing that suffering to be present, which feels like an honoring of that human being in my existence. Yeah, I love the suffering part because when you allow yourself to suffer, it shows you the edges of your identity yeah, and exactly. the places where to work. So that, I love that one. That's one of my yeah. favorites. You know, and mostly we look at, we look at camera shots on Facebook and my sister's always saying that my daughter looks so great. She's always smiling when she, she posts on Instagram or Facebook, but actually that's what we're practiced in doing is hiding our suffering and showing people this sort of this face that says, how are you? And they often say, I'm fine, which means, fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotionally unstable. <laughs> so, yes. um, then there's creating a Sangha. And, and to me, this is the most important chapter of, the, of my book and the most important practice we can have. Because in these times, specifically, we have an enormous need to be met by people of like mind. And the I Ching, which I've used a lot, the I Ching, which I've used a lot in my life, um, says at one stage... Until we reach a certain stage in our evolution, not only do we have a need for the support of others of like mind, 
we have a duty to seek that support. Mm. And there's something about surrounding ourselves with kindred spirits where that loneliness, that lonesomeness of feeling our soul is not met can be alleviated and can be met. And we can be support systems for each other. And I would say when you've been through your suffering, if you've got a sangha, then you're very fortunate that you can have that. Then there's finding your purpose. And your purpose isn't necessarily I'm going to take over the world. Your purpose, you know, and one of the examples I've written about find your purpose was in the olden days in London when they used to have bus conductors on the buses. And there was a bus, there was a bus I used to get regularly to work. And uh, the bus conductor there was like this, this little old guy. And he used to sort of like laugh and joke with all the sort of people on the bus. And the bus felt like a sort of like a magical carnival whenever I was on it. And I always wanted to catch that bus because that guy had found his purpose. His bus was his stage. And on his stage, people were elevated and uplifted. And if you came on feeling tough, feeling rough, you would doubtless be uplifted by the vibe. So, you know, your purpose might be rearing a child to, to, to not have to carry the wounds that you've carried in your life. There can be all sorts of things that are around your purpose. Um, then there's breaking spell. And very often we, we buy into the spells that we're told. So, for example, a doctor will say to you, you've got six months to live. That's a powerful spell. There'll be a part of you already winding down and going towards that six month of not surviving. And you have to find your own truth in that place as well. Or you'll be told within a relationship where you're just selfish and, and you might take that on and believe it rather than really working with it and not buying into other people's statements about who you are and what you are. Um, and then there's befriending death. And, and I actually think that um, um, that's, we live in a death phobic society where we avoid death at all costs. But actually, death is an inevitable part of life. And actually, in facing the fact that we're going to die, we also live more fully. And I was, I was out walking with my friend the other day, and uh, he said, would you want to live you know, for another an extra 100 years if you could? And I said, probably not, because actually, we go through this life, we learn what we learn, and, and, and ultimately, I do believe that consciousness exists. And therefore, we are not just Michael and Malcolm talking, we are... We are consciousness exchanging and interacting. So um, I, I think there's something about allowing that dying is, a, is an inevitable part of living and that actually it has meaning. And if we can be with dying, what a wonderful gift it is when we can be with someone who's dying. And um, I, I think that that's, that's a sort of a, a golden moment. And, you know, I've often been working with people who've sat with people as they've died. And one of the stories I tell in my book is of this, this woman who, sat with a part of the last four months of his life in the hospice where he was at. And as he was dying, she slid her hand under his head. Mm. And she said, she just pointed to the mountains outside and said, there's the mountains, fly away. I'll join you when I can. And he died in that moment. Mm. And it was really beautiful. There was something about, she knew he was dying. He knew he was dying. And she gave him permission to go in front of her. And death is not the horror. It, it can be horrible dying. You can have a terrible death. But death is not the horror we believe it to be. Consciousness exists and consciousness will live on. That's my belief anyway. That's my understanding and my occasional touching within the place of meditation. Yeah, and death, death really gives life meaning too. Yeah. Such, such a powerful thing. The masters have always said, you know, die with every breath that, that yes. um, you know, keeps us in the present when we recognize that you know, it'd be really interesting. How would we be if we were eternal? You know, it'd be like Groundhog Day or something like that. You know? It's true. 
actually it would it would lose life would lose a lot of its meaning yeah. you know, the, the meaning is to to make your contribution and then to pass the baton on when you're ready to the next generation yeah yeah brilliant uh malcolm stern it's just such a delight to spend time with you and now that we've met we could probably go on for hours and hours here we go michael yes <laughs> but if there's just some last tip to make life more alive and vibrant for people what would you tell them i think the thing it's interesting because i think in the simplicity is where things really are mm. and for me i've got loads of quotes that i use i, I collect quotes I'm, i don't deliberately collect them but they stay in me and they, and they live in me but there's something the dalai lama said once that i just thought you can't top that and he said my religion is kindness mm-hmm. and for me that's that's the, that's the practice if i'm to look at one practice that i could do in my life that will make uplift my life and the life of others around me. It will be to practice kindness. Yeah, yeah. There's something with kindness that also is about acceptance too. Yeah, you know, that's so powerful to do to be with that. Well, Malcolm, I hope you uh, write many more books so we can have many more conversations. Right. And if you want to chat sometime, just give me a ring. I'd love to. Uh, Lovely, thank act. you. Mark. I canceled my teaching last summer because of COVID in in Europe, but I'm hoping to go there in the fall. So I would love to to get together with you and uh, spend some time, perhaps in uh, August or September. So right, let me know. Let's see. Let's see how this all unfolds. Exactly, it is (laughs) a mystery. Yes, a mystery. All right, Malcolm Stern, thank you for your wonderful book. We will be in touch again. Many blessings. Michael, many blessings to you. See you then. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.